It's time for another edition of the Cattails Podcast, the official podcast of Weber State Athletics. I am Paul Grua, pleased to be joined today by the voice of the Wildcats, Steve Klauke. He's entering his sixth year as the full-time voice of the Wildcats, which is hard to believe. Steve, how are you? I'm doing well, Paul. Thanks. And yeah, it's hard to believe that uh, this is the sixth year, but those first five years have been so much fun and so much enjoyment that uh, I can't wait for uh, the season to start whenever that may be. Exactly. We're all crossing our fingers for that, for sure. Steve Clocky, if you don't know who he is, well, you should know who he is. But he is the voice of the Wildcats, as I said, entering his sixth season this year for football and men's basketball. Is the full-time voice, the radio voice for the Wildcats on 1430 KLO. Also does some games, of course, that are streamed on Pluto TV and Watch Big Sky. Steve is a three-time Utah Sportscaster of the Year, and he's also been the voice of the Salt Lake Bees since the organization began back in 1994 and he, he also did a whole lot of, of things with the Utah Jazz and we're going to get into all that and let's start there with Jerry Sloan who of course just passed away this last Friday and I know you've talked about it with others but let, let's uh, let's talk about some memories that you have of him and you, of course you go back to even his playing days probably remembering him a little bit in, in Chicago as well but what are some of the things that you'll always remember about Jerry Sloan? Well, first of all, Paul, I was very fortunate uh, in junior high and high school to uh, go watch the Bulls play in person and watch Jerry Sloan, who really was, you know, he's considered the first Bull, but he's also considered I think, Mr. Chicago Bull until Michael Jordan came along. Uh, he was a guy that, uh, as you all know, left it out on the floor night in and night out, worked as hard as he could, uh, hoped to draw 10 charges a game. I mean, he'd take charges from Wilt Chamberlain rumbling down the lane, and that's no easy task. And uh, Jerry uh, was willing to take full contact. He wasn't flopping like we see in in some players today. And he was a guy that uh, everybody loved. I mean, it was interesting. Uh, my 20th high school reunion, uh, they had us send pictures of ourselves at work and uh, with the family and all that. And my two work pictures, uh, okay, I played it up. One was a picture with, of me with John Stockton. The other was me with Jerry Sloan. And when the picture came up on the screen at the reunion with uh, John and I, yeah, a little bit of a murmur or two, but nothing really much. And then when the, the picture of uh, Coach and I uh, showed up on the screen, the place erupted in a roar of cheers because he was our guy really back then uh, when uh, we were in high school. And it was interesting, too, when, when I got the job in 1991 to come to Salt Lake City and, and do the jazz pre-half and post-game shows and what have you, it was interesting. I couldn't wait to meet Jerry because he was really, you know, a, a childhood idol. And the first time I had a chance to meet him was, was at a luncheon. And the first year of the Bulls, when he played, they played at a building called the International Amphitheater. And it was right next door to the old Chicago stockyards. And quite frankly, it smelled like the stockyards. And so I asked him, Jerry, how could you guys play in a place like that? It smelled awful. And his response was, I'm from a farm in Southern Illinois. It smelled like money to me. He loved it, probably. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he, he, he really did. It was, uh, you know, it was funny. Uh, you know, he was known as a tough defensive player, but he averaged over 13 points a game in his career. As a matter of fact, I didn't realize this. And granted, they didn't officially make steals a stat until his last three seasons, but he's the only player in NBA history to average uh, more than seven rebounds and two steals 
for his career. So he was able to do, and he once scored 43 points in a game. I remember uh, telling uh, the Deseret News writer who was covering the Jazz at the time, Tim Buckley, that uh, we were coming up on the anniversary of Jerry's uh, career high. So, you know, would uh, you ought to do an article about it? I said he went 19 for 36 from the field and five of six from the foul line in a game in Milwaukee against the Bucks. And he said, that's a pretty good idea. So he talked to a couple of players and one of the players was Matt Harpering, now television analyst for the Jazz. And I remember Tim telling me that uh, when he gave Matt those stats, he looked in amazement and says, coach took 36 shots in a game? He'd kill us if we did that. And I guess it practiced for the next two days, and Jerry had no idea why. Harpering kept calling him Kobe. <laughs> you know, it's been, it's been so neat to see and read some of the memories and thoughts that so many people around the NBA and around basketball have had about him. And, you know, he played the same way that he coached, I guess, in a way, right? He was just so hard, but he protected his players. He did, he'd do anything for his team. And he never really wanted the, the limelight or the, you know, the praise or anything like that. And, and just, he really, you know, obviously Stockton and Malone are, are the epitome of, of the jazz and will be, but he's right there with them, isn't he? As, as part of the history of this franchise. Oh, there, there's no doubt. His, uh, I think his thumbprint on uh, his time with the Jazz still shows with the team today that the Jazz are known for, for hard-nosed basketball and all that. But, you know, what always interested me about Jerry was the fact that as intense as he was as a player and as a coach, he was able to put it aside once the game was over with, really once the, the post-game interviews were done and uh, you maybe talked to his coaches, he was able to – Matter of fact, his late uh, first wife, Bobby Sloan, uh, always used to tell my wife that uh, Jerry was really good about, uh, you know, not taking the game home with him. He was able to uh, relax as best as possible and, and not uh, stew over a game uh, for, you know, a couple of days or whatever. He was able to put it behind him, and he, he really had a soft side. Somebody asked me the other day, what was the happiest you ever saw Jerry and a lot of people who answered the same question said when he was running on the floor when Stockton hit the shot against Houston to get them to the finals for the first time in 1997. And I think uh, uh, really my answer to that question was uh, whenever his uh, three kids, Brian, Kathy and Holly were in town with their kids and he was able to see the grandkids right after the media scrum so it was uh, really uh, he was really a family guy and a, a down-to-earth guy and just uh, an amazing person to be around you know coaching wise he, he, a lot of what he did uh, he learned from his uh, you know second head coach in Chicago of course the former Weaver State head coach Dick Mata he was uh, definitely a disciple of what Dick liked to do on the floor yeah, I was going to mention that, too. He does have a little tie there to, to Weber State. And, and Dick, Dick shared some great stories about how tough he was and how he'd get in as a player. You know, he'd get in fights back then. Of course, there were more fights going on than there are now. But sometimes with, sometimes with the other team and sometimes with his teammates. Exactly. With Maravich and Chamberlain and anybody. You know, one of the uh, things, too, about uh, Coach, and I think uh, Randy Ray is the same way. He – I think he enjoyed being around the team and, and watching the teams come together as one. I, I, he, he was all, he really, I think because of the, you know, growing up on the farm and not really enjoying a lot of friendship at the time and having to work so hard that he loved the camaraderie of, of coaching, uh, of, excuse me, of his uh, being a teammate with a group of guys. I know a few years ago, 
uh, he was really down uh, when I saw him after the passing of his former guard teammate, uh, Norm Van Leer, and the passing of his uh, first uh, Chicago head coach, uh, Johnny Red Kerr. And then a couple of years later, it was, it was devastating to him when he lost probably his closest friend on that Chicago team, the center seven-footer by the name of Tom Warwinkle. And he, he told me the story about how uh, Tom bought the house behind his in the Chicago suburbs. And one day, Jerry looked out the backyard and saw that Tom was building a fence. So he went back to Tom and said, well, how tall is the fence going to be? And of course, Jerry was 6'5". And Tom says, well, I think I'm going to make the fence six feet, nine inches tall. That way I can see into your backyard and you can't see into mine. <laughs> there you go. He was one of a kind. And, and you know, you, you, you know, kept in touch with the jazz and with, with his family to a degree in the last few years. And he's, he of course has been, you know, has been having some hard, hard times health wise, but, you know, certainly, certainly hard to see him go. And, and someone that was, that will definitely be always remembered here around here as uh, as a legend with the jazz. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, uh, the first jazz game that I ever worked uh, after moving here was in 1991 at the D event center against the Houston Rockets. So there's that tie as well. That it, it was uh, sad to see, but he, had, as you mentioned, had been in, in poor health uh, the last few years. The last time I saw him was I think in January of 2019, uh, I had to deliver a package to him because uh, this, this went on a long time he really loved my wife's homemade caramel candy. And uh, I brought him, uh, he, said, he used to tell me he used to eat them like popcorn. And I brought him uh, uh, some caramels uh, one January at the, at the jazz game. And he, he looked at me at a, with a really tired look on his eyes, but he opened up a smile and said, uh, well, looks like I'm going to gain 10 pounds. <laughs> there you go. There you go, for sure. Well, while we're sort of on the topic of the NBA, uh, give us your thoughts on the last dance. Did you watch the last dance about the Bulls, Bulls and Jordan? Oh, there's no doubt. I, I watched all 10 episodes and, uh, you know, probably wasn't a true documentary. It's maybe slanted a little bit uh, in Michael's direction, but uh, it was really fun to watch some of the backdrop, uh, the backstories and all that. And, you know, I can remember being a part of that, although it wasn't certainly as large as it was towards the end being a part of that uh, media scrum uh, his first uh, two or three years in the NBA before they had, uh, you know, press conference tables and all that. You just huddle around his locker because the station I worked at in the Chicago suburbs, I would go maybe six or seven times a year to a Bulls game and go uh, uh, interview Michael after the game. And so it was always, uh, uh, it was interesting to see that. I was hoping to catch a glimpse of myself, but apparently the camera crew wasn't around when, uh, when I was, <laughs> when I was interviewing Michael at the time, but you could really see things uh, uh, develop back then. It took maybe longer than a lot of people thought the Pistons had, uh, had something to say about that. But once they broke through, it was uh, almost impossible to stop. The only thing that stopped them was baseball for a couple of years. It's been neat to hear, you know, people that are younger, say even yet in 25 or so, that they really wouldn't remember watching him play at all. And, and you know, for older people like, like me and like you, I guess, we remember these things, but it's, it's neat to have the younger generation be able to watch and see what he was like and really how good he was. And, and it's proven, again, again how, how much of, a, of an icon that he, that he really was and, and is today. And, and that's been a neat thing, I think, to see the younger generation be able to watch him. 
Absolutely. I think it was uh, interesting. Uh, obviously, the younger generation uh, maybe leans towards Kobe or LeBron, but uh, I think uh, a lot of young eyes were opened and, and watching some of the highlights and some of the games and the way he led his team uh, that uh, you know, he maybe he is the greatest of all time when it comes to professional basketball. And I think Magic Johnson put it the best the other day when he said, LeBron James may be the most overall talented player in NBA history, but Michael Jordan is still the greatest because he was able to step forward and deliver more often than not. I mean, he was 6-0 and in the finals. And I realize basketball is a team game, but LeBron's teams won three and lost six. Yeah. So from a jazz perspective, it was certainly a, a more open up more uh, memories that were that were hard <laughs> memories in the last two years of the finals. You were, of course, calling baseball games during that time, but you were still a part of it and part of the jazz organization and the Miller family. What are your memories of the finals uh, when they were here in 97, 98? Well, it's kind of interesting, Paul, because, you know, I, I was with the team all throughout the regular season during the pre-half and post-game shows. But obviously, come April, I would leave for the buzz games at the time. And I remember uh, the night that Stockton hit the shot to send him to the finals in 1997. I was on the air in the bottom of the ninth for a game for the buzz in Edmonton, Alberta against the Trappers. And when the bottom of the ninth ended and we won the game, my board up was yelling and screaming and I said what happened and so he told me what happened and to be honest it was rather quick post-game shows because I wanted to get back to my hotel room and watch the highlights but then again I realized when I got to the hotel room that I'm in Canada and at 25 minutes out of the 30 minute sports center was all about the Stanley Cup playoffs I really didn't get a, a full idea as to what uh, had taken place until midnight Edmonton time, which was 11 o'clock Spokane time, because American television on cable was fed into Edmonton from Spokane. And because of John's connection, obviously, it was the lead story on all of the Spokane newscasts that night. <laughs> well, there, no, nothing against you, but there may not have been a lot of people listening to the Edmonton game that night. It went stuck in the shot. I <laughs> well, guess. I, I think I think our owner at the time, the late Joe Buse, has probably had it on in, in the background. But you're right; I was uh, I was pretty much talking to myself at that point. I was fortunate enough, though, to get to at least one. I think I went to one home game each of the two years of the playoffs, just so I could, you know, get the, the timing worked out. I could go to the games and actually had a chance to visit with a lot of the Chicago media that I had known back in the 1980s. So that was a lot of fun. And then the, uh, the uh, last game of 98, I can remember we were fortunate enough to have a day game in Calgary, Alberta, and uh, was able to, uh, uh, sit in my hotel room and uh, watch that uh, sixth game and uh, agonize when Jordan's shot went through. Of course, I agonized <laughs> a little more when Dick Pavetta blew two shot clock calls. To me, that yes. that hurts. That hurts more than the alleged push off. Oh yes, indeed. The Jazz had you know, if, if it hadn't have been for Jordan, they, they certainly you know, I don't know what would have happened, but would, a lot of team, a lot of players, Barkley right. and others, would have would have perhaps won. Won some titles. They just had some bad timing when they ran into him. And, and maybe, maybe Houston wouldn't have won any. Uh, Chicago you might have won know. eight in a row. You never know. You never know. But you know, it's been great. Like I said, to to have the chance to just remember those days and and rewatch uh, what it, what it was like from him, even younger, coming up. Like you said, going through the Pistons, which were hard for so many years, and then finally being able to get 
to get the get on top and and continue and stay on top was really remarkable for sure. You know, it was funny too watching the the highlights from '97 and '98 between the Jazz and the Bulls. I'd spend more time. I mean, I obviously saw it, watched the the game highlights, but I would be able to pick out. Wait, I know that fan they just showed. Wait, I know that Usher. You know, it was kind of fun to to see some of those people again. Yeah, for sure. Steve Clocky is our guest, and Steve, this is kind of like when we go out on the road and we go to dinner and we just get the chance to just chat, and that's kind of what we're doing here, which is great, because we're, I'm lucky enough to have that opportunity, and you've always got a lot of stories uh, to talk about, but right now is such a unique time. I'm sure this has got to be the longest you haven't worked or called a game in quite a while since March 11th when the basketball season ended in, in Boise. It's been, it's been a long time for you not to have a game. It really feels strange. It's uh, You're right. It has been a long, long time since I've gone this uh, long without a game. And uh, quite frankly, I don't like it. And the other thing, too, is uh, I can't wait to get back to work again because I need the rest. I mean, I, I will say this. My, my yard, my lawn looks as good as it's ever looked. So uh, I've been busy doing that and walking about 10, 11 miles a day. But I would rather be, you know, at this point, I'd even rather be in Fresno, which is usually a place I don't want to be, but I wish I was in Fresno uh, to call games, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, something will happen soon. But uh, it's uh, it's been a very, very strange uh, start to the summer for me. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, obviously uncertainty of what will happen with with the pro sports and with even even down to the minor leagues uh, for baseball and even into, into college. We're un- unsure still what will happen this fall. We're hoping for the best and planning on the schedule like we have but you never know but yeah it's got to be hard for you because you were so busy I mean I don't know how you did it I remember when when you got the job at Weber State after Carl Arkey uh, was here for 18 years and, and moved on to some other opportunities and I remember calling you and, and saying hey would you would you be interested in doing this full time and you of course had filled in for a lot of games for several years but you really don't have much of a break because you know your baseball season goes from early April to September and then the football season starts right in September which goes into basketball which ends in March and so not a lot of downtime for Steve Clocky so this is probably very unusual. It is very unusual I mean sometimes I mean this had the baseball season started on time I would have had a a three-week break due to the unfortunate early exit for the Wildcats uh, up in Boise but you know three even three weeks for me is long now that we're uh, past the two-month mark it is very strange that I'm not, uh, you know, doing my prep work. I'm not filling out my cards on the players. I'm, uh, I, fortunately, I've been able to transfer a lot of my information on my football depth charts and all that over to my home computer so that I can uh, get ready and hopefully uh, have a football season starting Labor Day weekend in Laramie against the Wyoming Cowboys. It's been uh, uh, very unusual, but uh, uh, my wife says, well, maybe this is kind of a, a preparatory period for us to find out what uh, retirement's going to be like, and I, I don't think I'm ready to retire anytime soon. <laughs> well, well, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> that, that is a good thing, and you know, uh, let's, let's tell fans a little bit about, you mentioned about preparation, and how much do you prepare? What's that preparation like? And also, of course, each sport is a little different, but but what's the preparation that you do for a, for a game? Well, for, uh, for football, uh, it starts on Monday. I, I actually take the uh, depth chart off the visiting team's game notes and apply it to my depth chart, making alterations later on uh, in the week uh, once the official starting lineups uh, come out uh, from the schools. Uh, 
update the, the, the stats, uh, fill out notes on the board so that uh, you, know, you try to drop a story in or two uh, that uh, Jerry Graybeal uh, and I or David Patton and I can talk about in regards to uh, uh, the different players. Because I really want to make these players people and not just uniform numbers and statistics. So uh, I like to put notes down on the sheet, not only about the players, but about the teams in, in, in general. Um, and obviously, as the week goes on, I get more information. I've got bookmarked the newspapers of all the in all the cities of, of the Big Sky schools. And then uh, come Friday, if it's a home game, uh, head on up, uh, talk to Coach Hill and uh, uh, pre-record our pregame interview for Saturday. And of course, if it's a, a road game, uh, get ready to travel somewhere on Friday. And it's kind of funny when we first started doing this uh, on the road, I'd get Coach Hill at the uh, hotel the night before for our game day pregame show interview. But the last couple of years, he's asked to switch that and do it once the team gets to the stadium. As uh, Jay likes to say, you know, we get to the stadium two hours before kickoff. And as the head coach, I have nothing to do until kickoff. So he is much more at ease uh, to do it then than do it the night before when he's running around making sure the bed checks are good and all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, it takes a whole week to prepare for one football game and you know kind of do the same thing uh, for basketball as well. So it's uh, uh, as I told my kids when they were growing up, I do more homework now than I did when I was in school. <laughs> Well, it's it's worth it, and and in baseball, probably a little different too, because you're playing the same team sometimes for four four days in a row, and that has to be a little bit of a a, a complexity there too. So, like you said, every, every sport is has its challenges and has its maybe some are easier than others too. Yeah, baseball. I, I keep a four by six index card on every player in the league so that uh, I have all that information at my fingertips. I'll look at all the newspapers around the league. And if I find a nice tidbit about a player, I'll, I'll put it on the card. And then of course, yeah, it's a seven o'clock game. I'll be at the ballpark by one, you know, go to batting practice, talk to the players, find out uh, little notes like, for example, home team or visiting team. If I know that any of the players are switch hitters, I will ask them during batting practice, how do you approach batting practice? Do you do it 50-50 or you bat on one side more than the other based on whether the starting pitcher is going to be left-handed or right-handed? And it's interesting because each player has generally a different answer for that question. Yeah, for sure. And everybody's different. That, that's, that's interesting to hear. We've talked about this before, but uh, what are some of the, maybe it's hard to say which one, but hardest sports to broadcast for you you know each one has its challenges but I enjoy them all I really do I mean baseball uh, it's a slower paced game so you you have stories to tell and what have you that uh, uh, to, to mesh in with the play-by-play uh, -play play itself so from that standpoint I really really enjoy that Football is great to do. Uh, I always considered it to be my weakest sport, but I think I've gotten better at it. Uh, it's, it's, and, it and basically, you know, you set the formation. When they break the huddle, you uh, uh, call and describe the play. And then uh, when the play is over with, you give the down and distance. And then I just basically hand it over to uh, Jerry Graybeal. And Jerry knows that uh, he can analyze what took, took place or if he sees something, uh, he can talk about it until the uh, offense breaks the huddle again. And so I can 
reset the the offense. Now, a little bit difficult when guys uh, when teams start using the hurry up offense. But uh, uh, from that standpoint, in, in basketball, uh, the same thing. Uh, David Patton does a great job of knowing when to get in and out, and uh, and uh, I'll try to set it up and say. Uh, like last year, Jarek Harding makes a basket uh, and the teams are headed down the other floor. Basically, I let David uh, handle it until the ball gets to the top of the key. Then it's time to get back to me so that I can uh, describe what's going on. So it's uh, it's kind of fun, too, uh, working with Jerry and working with David because I work by myself in the baseball game. So I'm, I'm nonstop for three and a half, four hours sometimes. Uh, I, I really enjoy bouncing things off of those two guys who who know their games very well it's always good to hear Patton's stories and things too yeah <laughs> for sure <laughs> and, and Greenville both of them absolutely we're, we're lucky to have them both they're they're very good uh you know as we said at the start you, you're entering now your sixth season at Weber State and and uh, I think you've been lucky uh well we've been lucky to have you I know you've been lucky to work with some great coaches which you do closely and uh, being able to, to deal with them and also uh, be around the players. What, you know, this is probably really hard to answer, but as you look back on some of your favorite games, most memorable games that you call at Weber State, what stands out? Well, the, there's, a, there's a few, really. Uh, there's so many. Uh, the win at Southern Utah when the Wildcats were down more than three touchdowns in the fourth quarter, that comeback. I can still picture Daryl Denby streaking down the left hash into the end zone for the uh, game-winning touchdown, at least the tying touchdown before the extra point put the Wildcats ahead. Again, uh, going back to Cedar City, I think the uh, uh, the win there in the playoffs after they had won the regular season game at Stewart Stadium, that game really stands out. And I think uh, after what we saw uh, last year, that uh, the game up in Missoula, to be able to bounce back and beat Montana in the quarterfinals is, is something I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, you know, they, they forced five turnovers by Montana, which unfortunately was also the same number of turnovers, I think, that Montana had in the basketball game later that year. But uh, <laughs> those true. are the three football games that really stand out. As far as basketball is concerned, the, the, my first season when they won the Big Sky Championship game to go to the NCAA tournament for the first time, and it's funny, with all the games that we've done in the last five years, really the one that stands out more than any other is one of my fill-in games for Carl, and that was a triple overtime game up in Pocatello when Damian Lillard hit a runner in the lane with a half second to go in the third overtime to beat uh, the Bengals up there at uh, Holt Arena. That's a, a sight that I'll never forget. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, absolutely. And you've been a part of so many of those games. And I, I think you mentioned before that it's kind of surprised me when, when the basketball team won the, the title in 2016 and then football's now won three straight. But in all the games you had gone, you hadn't been around a, a championship winning team. Is that right? That is true. The, uh, the baseball team in Salt Lake, whether it be the Buzz, the Stingers or the Bees have made it to the PCL finals four times but have come up empty uh, the first time in 1995 lost on a, a walk-off uh, blooper in the bottom of the ninth inning in the fifth and deciding game in Colorado Springs in 2000 lost the series to Memphis three games to one losing game four on a walk-off homer in the bottom of the 13th inning by a young man who was just up from a ball to fill the roster because the Cardinals had called up so many players from Memphis that turned out to be also the last uh, minor league at bat for Albert Pujols. He's the one who hit the home run. They lost a 
Stingers lost a four-game series uh, against Edmonton in 2002. And in 2013, they lost three games to one uh, to Omaha in the uh, championship. I think the only other team that even came close was back in the 80s when I used to do men's fast-pitch softball. Our local team uh, made it to the national championship through the winner's bracket and only had to win one of two games, but uh, lost the first one two to nothing and then lost the, the championship game in 14 innings, one to nothing, as our pitcher, a guy by the name of Chris Nicholas, gave up his only earned run in 70 and two-third innings of the tournament, and that decided the championship. So, and, and, of course, with the Jazz making the finals twice and not uh, winning either one. So uh, my fingers were bare until I became a Wildcat and uh, had that championship ring from basketball in uh, 2016 and, of course, the three championships from uh, football. Yeah, well, it's it's always nice to be around a, a championship team. No question about that. That's great. Uh, so you love to keep stats, as you know, and stats are a big part of uh, of what you do. But I have some questions for you. I know you love to keep your own stats. How many states have you broadcast games in? 33, you know out, of the, 33 out of the 50. I was hoping to get to 34 this summer with uh, the bees going to Wichita, Kansas. But uh, I, I, that uh, I think the, if, if we, even if the AAA does come back, they're going to cut back on the amount of travel. And so probably wouldn't make that trip. And then uh, uh, football thir- would be 35. Now I guess it'll be 34 in Laramie because I've never done a sporting event uh, in Wyoming. Is that right? I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, you know, you've been able to go to Alaska and uh, Bahamas and a few other places too. That's pretty neat that the places you've been able to go to. Yeah, it's, to it's, been, it's, been, it's been fun. Uh, the, you know, the second to last great Alaska shootout, which was one of the original great Thanksgiving time tournaments, but uh, budget cutbacks uh, and the fact that they didn't have the ESPN money uh, for that tournament uh, put uh, that uh, baby to bed, I guess. And then, uh, you know, I had a chance to go to the Bahamas two years in a row with the Wildcats. Uh, uh, I had a chance to go to uh, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and uh, also the Bahamas again as a fill-in many years ago with uh, the University of Utah. So uh, I've had a chance to, to see a lot and do a lot and looking forward to some more. And you've traveled to 49 out of 50 states. Is that right? I, I'm, I'm still missing Delaware. I, 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 was, I hadn't been to Alabama, but last summer uh, when the bees were in Nashville, I got up early one morning and made the hour and a half drive to Madison, Alabama to have breakfast so that I can say that I'd been in Alabama. There you go. I think we need to schedule a home and home with the, the blue hens of Delaware or something like that. I yeah. like that idea. <laughs> get, get that one off your list. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and also, uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, you are a, a legend in that one, too. How many of those have you visited? I've uh, been to 197. I went to my 197th a couple of weeks ago. Uh, got pizza at a place in West Valley City called uh, Curry Pizza, which was featured on the show not too long ago. So, uh, yeah, it's a, when I travel, I like to eat local rather than chain, but then local can be iffy too. So I figure if it's been on the show, there's a pretty good chance the food is good. And uh, I've been very fortunate. And I think because of that, I've, I've gained a reputation uh, whenever we're on the road. Well, let's see where Steve eats. It's probably going to be good. Pretty much. That's kind of how it works. We you know, ask you if you have any suggestions. <laughs> a lot of the places, of course, we go to, you know, we've been to multiple times, but sometimes we'll go to some new ones and, uh, that's a lot. That seems like it's gone up the last uh, even couple of years quite a bit. Has has that number increased pretty high? 
What yeah, yeah. You know, I hit that one uh, uh, last uh, weekend of the season uh, for basketball. We were in Spokane uh, after a day game at Eastern Washington, and I went to a, a little place in Spokane that I hadn't been to that was on the show called Ruins, which was actually Russian food, and I had these pork stuffed dumplings that were really, really good. So, you know, I keep adding, you know, keep adding whatever I can and, uh, you know, check a few places out. For example, it was about a year and a half ago, I went to seven different Triple D spots when my wife and I went on a vacation around New England. I think we hit uh, some in Massachusetts, several in Maine, one in New Hampshire, one in Vermont. So it's kind of fun to to check out these places and go to a restaurant like that and and remember what what, what it looked like from the television show. What are some of the strangest things that you've eaten? Well, there was uh, an Italian restaurant in Albuquerque uh, that featured blue squid ink pasta. And so it was like a, a, a navy blue pasta with uh, sautéed uh, seafood. Uh, obviously, the the Russian uh, dumplings uh, are something a little bit different. And the, probably the weird, one of the weirdest things, and it was probably the only thing I haven't liked, is a, a restaurant in Nebraska. I had some uh, deep-fried carp. Now, carp obviously is a bottom feeder among fish, uh, it was awful. I took one or two <laughs> bites and not only was it bad, but the uh, chef on the show said we cook it hot enough to dissolve all the bones. And I took one bite. And there were six or seven bones in my mouth and it scared me half to death. So that's really the, uh, the one bad, bad one that I've had from that show. Oh, that's funny. Well, I've been fortunate enough to travel quite a bit with you and, and we get the opportunity to go in a lot of different places and have conversations and, and have food too. And so it's, uh, you, you definitely could write a book probably at least around, you know, big sky or, or Pacific coast league cities. You could probably write a book of some recommendations in a lot of cities. <laughs> well, I, I know there was a period of time where I was adding a lot of restaurants during the baseball season. And I had uh, uh, a blog on the bees website called uh, triple D in triple a and a lot of the scouts and the umpires would follow that so that they, uh, they, they figure, well, if it's on Steve's blog, it must be good. There you go. Exactly. That's a good idea. Yeah. You go to places, you know, in the, in big sky in football or basketball, like Sacramento and Portland and, and, you know, Reno we went to for a while, but some of those same places uh, are in the, in the well, especially Sacramento, at least in the, in the bees where you've gone there so many times and, and you have the opportunity to, to visit and try a lot of different places. So I'm glad you're adding to that number 197. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, that's actually, you know, that was one of the things I look most forward to when uh, you guys asked me to, to come on board was the fact that uh, Portland was one of my favorite cities in the Pacific coast league. And uh, uh, the Portland Beavers are now the El Paso Chihuahuas and it was one of my favorite walking cities, one of my favorite eating cities. So I always look forward to the chance to, to go to Portland for basketball or football. Yeah, for sure. Well, Steve, it's been great to talk to you. We probably shouldn't leave without a couple of puns. You have any great puns you want to share with us? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, Put you on the spot there. I just, uh, there's just so much uh, uh, going on. My, my head is racing. I, I guess you could say that a lot of my puns are situational, so I need the right situation to, yes. uh, to, 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 to hit on them. But uh, I'm sure they'll come plenty uh, they'll, uh, they'll come. Yeah, football and basketball season. 
Derek, Derek Dawes and I even had an idea that we should do a, you know, puns with Steve, something like that this summer where we may still have to do that. We'll see. <laughs> or you can share some of your great uh, dad jokes or one-liners or puns or whatever it is. Cause you're uh, you're a legend in those too. Well, uh, university president Brad Mortensen keeps, uh, keeps a list on his phone of uh, the ones that he likes. Yes, he does. He loves to hear those and loves to, <laughs> loves to share with them. Well, it's good to talk with you. We'll probably talk again uh, this summer for sure. But, you know, we're hoping uh, and counting down, of course, when football will begin in September is, is the current plan. And, and I guess hoping for the best for you as well for the, for the summer. But uh, best of luck. It's always good to talk with you. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate the time. And, yeah, so hopefully uh, we'll have – I don't always say – I wouldn't always say this, but I'm really looking forward to hoping that we're in Laramie, Wyoming, Labor Day weekend. Well, that's saying something, but we're hoping that you get get another state off your list there to broadcast from the War Memorial Stadium there in Laramie. There you go. All right, Steve. Have a good day. We'll be in touch. Thanks for, thanks for joining us on the Cattails Podcast. 